Thank you, Renee. It's so important for us to, to, to keep reminding ourselves of how good God is to us. And in the, throughout the Psalms, we're reminded of these things in nature that if we notice them, will remind us again how good God is and what he's doing in the world and in our lives. Uh, that confidence is especially important as we uh, look at the life of David, as we continue to, per, to, to walk through this uh, together. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that I, I want us to get uh, straight as we go through this story, we're, we're looking at the in particular, the story of the life of David, and, the, and uh, there's a, for you literature nerds out there, I took half of an English degree before I, uh, so I, I, when I failed out of university three times, uh, and uh, so, but th- these are the few things that I remember. So every story has a protagonist. You know, the leading character in one of the, or, or one of the major characters in a drama, movie, novel, or text. So the, the protagonist in this story is David. He's the person that we're following most of the time. He's the person that we're attempting to learn from and to emulate. But every story also has to have an antagonist. The person who actively opposes or is hostile to someone or something, an adversary. And, and stories don't work unless you have both. Okay? If you're just like, if you just have like, once upon a time there was Jim, and everything went well for Jim, and then he died. Like, that's not a good story. Nobody reads that story. It's not interesting. Uh, but So in the story of, uh, of David, we, we need to have this attention to, to who is his antagonist, and that ends up being Saul. And this is also important for us as we look at the entire Bible, and this is a non-rhetorical question. I actually want you to think about this and, and answer the question uh, out loud. Who is, the, who is the protagonist of the entire story of the Bible? God, yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Okay, who is the antagonist in the entire story of the Bible? No, not Satan, us. Satan sometimes works against God. Satan's like a, a, a tertiary character, a third-level character. The real antagonist is us. And this is very important that we get this straight. And I think that this is incredibly important uh, that we get this straight because if you begin to think that one, one of, that we have this straight because um, one of the most dangerous things that we can do in this world is we forget that our main adversary to what God wants to do in this world is ourselves, then we start to look for it somewhere else. So you find it in Satan, which would be a good one, or you find it in sinners, or you find it in people of the opposing political party, or you find it in, in people who, who, who look different than you and have a different ethnicity, that those are not the antagonists that we face the most trouble from. The real antagonist is in ourselves, the part of our, our, ourselves that wants, to, that, that, that wants control and to, and to uh, push God off of his throne as Lord of the entire world. So this changes the way that we look at the story. And, and we can't talk about the life of David without talking about the life of Saul. Because so much of who David is is in response to Saul for better and for worse. And in the story, God uses Saul and Saul's madness and Saul's meanness and Saul's inconsistency and, and to, to, to forge in David a faithfulness and a trust that he might not have had on his own. And he doesn't do it perfectly. We're going to see that later on. But... As we're going to see through the first two acts of David's life, Saul is the primary antagonist. And, 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 and that's going to change how we look at him, but also it warns us of something that we ought not to be ourselves. 
Because at the beginning, this is right after the story of David and Goliath. So right after that, um, we start to see things go well for David. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So we see this, this relationship forged between, uh, between David and Jonathan that we could not have expected. And all of a sudden, they become very, very close friends. Now, um... There's a movement within some levels of biblical scholarship to take this friendship beyond friendship to a romantic relationship. I don't think you can really do that from the text. I don't, th- you know, uh, and, and I don't, and, and I just don't think that that was what was really intended by the ancient literature. But just so you know that that's out there, people say that this is where it comes from. Um, so, but a couple of things that I do want us to notice uh, in this context that 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 um, Jonathan. Uh, as Saul's son, takes off the robe that he was wearing and gives it to David along with his tunic, uh, his, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. So we see this, that David wears these things in contrast to wearing the things of Saul, which happened last chapter, right? Remember Saul, when he, before he went to fight David, uh, sorry, before David went to fight Goliath, Saul tries to give him his stuff, and, and David can't wear it because he's unused to it, Right? Jonathan gives him his stuff and it fits, right? So something interesting happened there. Other thing that happens is, is uh, symbolically, Jonathan's tunic and sword and his bow and his belt, those things would have been indicative as the prince that he was one day going to be king. And symbolically, this was a way of saying, I'm, I'm taking off my rights to be king next and I'm now bestowing them onto David. We is a, a, a symbolic act on the on behalf of Jonathan. So things are going well for David there. And then whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army and this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistines, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and tambourines and lyres. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And of course, if Saul was a healthy and happy and complete human being, this would have made him happy. He's just experienced victory. He has someone who is working with him, who is showing loyalty to him. This is good and wonderful. David's success should have been his success as well. And the fact that he is rising in stature ought not to have threatened Saul. If Saul was healthy and the Spirit of the Lord had been in him. David is not attempting a coup. David is not doing anything that is contrary to what Saul wants him to do. But yet we see in the midst of this that Saul gets begins to shrink Saul was very angry this refrain displeased him greatly they've credited David with tens of thousands but me with only thousands which is sort of ridiculous right because neither of them actually killed that many people right it's all exaggeration and and Saul is uh, knows the way that Hebrew poetry works right that 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 you always amplify with the second line what happened with the first line so he's he's mad like the comedy in this line is that Saul is is not only mad at their exaggeration, he's mad at the way poetry works. Like he's mad at things that that don't matter. 
But with me, only thousands. What more can he get but, but the kingdom? And from that time, Saul kept a close eye on David. And Saul, so Saul, rather than being pleased at David's success, he begins to shrink. He begins to hate him for his success. And rather than Saul's heart growing larger, rather than him becoming more open and, and rejoicing at, at what God is doing in David, he becomes smaller and begins to shrink and become more hardened and, and more given to anger and bitterness and hatred. Now, it's very easy for us to sit here and say, Psh, Saul, what a fool. What, what is wrong with that guy? Why couldn't he just be happy for all of this success that's happening? But I know, I know that I felt this. Um, some of you might know, some of you know this, but a few years back I was in, uh, I, I was, uh, I won a thing here and then I went to a comedy thing at, at Just for Laughs 42 in, in uh, Toronto. They flew me out there and I was going to compete with 10 people and the prize was $10,000 for whoever had the best, co- sorry, $15,000 for whoever had the best comedy set. Now, I didn't win that contest. And in the immediate aftermath of that contest, of that half an hour, I didn't feel like, oh, well, I just guess I just got to fly to Toronto and perform at this fun festival and do a whole bunch of cool stuff and, and, and be a, I didn't think that at that moment. What I felt like was that the guy who won the contest, Faisal Butt, had, had come into my house and like kicked the door down and like taken $15,000 out of the hands of my children and been like, no, it's mine, and then run out the door again. That's not what happened, right? I just didn't win a contest. But that's what my heart was saying to me at that time, that, that his success equaled my failure. And, and not only did it equal my failure, that his success had been stolen from me somehow. So before we get too up in arms or too quick to jump on how terrible Saul is, let's, let's remember that, that this is something that is in us. Rather than focusing on the good things that we have, rather than seeing someone else have success and looking at, the, and looking at them and saying, that's wonderful, I'm very happy for you, I'm glad that you have that thing. The, 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 the tendency to, to view someone else's success as our failure creeps on all of us. And it's difficult to keep our hearts and our minds free of jealousy and envy and covetousness. But that is what happens with Saul. And the next day, an evil spirit from God, we already talked about that a couple of weeks ago, so I'm going to leave that, skip it, um, came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house, and while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand and hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall, but David eluded him twice. Now, this is kind of amazing to me, and, and this does border on comedy, because, like, after Saul throws the first spear at you, aren't you a little bit reluctant to be like, I'm just going to go back and, and play the liar in the courtyard again. That seems like a fun thing to do. You know, it doesn't, but David continues to do it. David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had per- departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns and everything he did he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul, Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So we see this initial weed of jealousy is planted, right? David has killed his, 
Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And that we, and rather than fighting against that weed, pulling it out and getting rid of it and saying, okay, that it doesn't matter what good David has. The Lord has blessed me in my own, in his own ways. Rather than pulling that out, he, he allows that to grow and fester and it takes root. And twice he tries to kill David. And not only that, for Saul, Rather than taking the opportunity for joy to celebrate that David has done all of these amazing things and, 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 to, and, to, and to, to rejoice with him that like, look at these amazing victories that you're having and what the Lord is giving you, you. Rather, than, rather than taking the opportunity to have his own faith grown by seeing God work mightily in someone that he is with, rather than joy and celebration and amazement, Saul instead has jealousy, fear, and hatred, and violence. And this is a dangerous path that Saul is taken down. But it's a very, very natural path. And in all honesty, this path, I've seen it, it doesn't normally result in trying to kill someone with a spear. But I've often seen in my life that in my younger days, someone would get married and someone would say, oh, you can't hang out with them anymore because they're married. And sometimes that was because the married people did something differently. But oftentimes it was because the person who wanted to be married and was not yet married saw in that couple, that married couple, something that, that, that tore them to pieces inside and they didn't want to be around them anymore. I've seen it. I saw it in my younger days when people started to have children where people who desperately wanted to have children and could not or had not. And they saw their friends with children, and they're like, oh, you can't hang out with them anymore because they have kids. That's all they ever talk about is their kids, 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 kids. And rather than experiencing joy with their friends, all of a sudden it's a bitterness and a loss at what they don't have. And this is not solely the the provident the solely the, the the fate of the young i've seen this in so many people when people begin to have set, success in their career that someone else says i just got a promotion i just got a rage sorry a rage i get rages sometimes i just got a, that was a very freudian slip um i just got a raise I, I just got a promotion my business is taking off and rather than rejoicing with that friend who had something good happen for them you begin to see that as an indictment of your own life like oh well i guess I guess things aren't happening for me. I guess things are, aren't, aren't going the way that I have. I guess that, th- that thing that you have is, 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 it, it makes me somehow lesser. And, and I've seen this in people my parents' age is like, uh, within my parents' family is like one set of cousins begin to like do reasonably well in life and have careers and children and stable families that that they start to feel the jealousy of of other family members whose children and grandchildren have not done so well that it starts to it starts to grate on them that to, to talk about oh our kids just bought their first house begins to grate on someone else whose whose children are not in the same place it's so easy for us to do to, to shrink and get smaller and, 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 and to rather than be able to celebrate and experience joy when someone else does well, we find ourselves getting smaller and angrier and more bitter and more prone to take offense and to see that, that um, like I did with Faisal Butt briefly, that, that, that he had success at me, you know, that, oh, you're, you're experiencing joy at me. Oh, you're having children at me. 
you're getting a raise at me, right? That's not the way that the world ought to work. That's not the way that we ought to work in that path always leads to destruction. So, and this leads Saul to make some really, really terrible, terrible decisions. Uh, he does this. Now Saul's daughter Michal was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him, which is not the way that a father should think about the marriage of his daughter, just in case you were concerned. So Saul said to David, you now have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. And when Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, say to David, the king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. And Saul's plan was for David to fall by the hands of the Philistines. This is one of the most messed up stories in the Bible, but I love this story. But yeah, Saul's plan is that like, I'll tell him to go kill a hundred Philistines because uh, I don't think he was like going to take the foreskins alive. And, uh, and, then, and then he could have, like he could have negotiated, I guess. But I mean, that's not, I'm not guessing that that was Saul's plan. Um, so, and that in this process that, that, that David's going to get, get murdered by the Philistines. And when the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, he finished the job early, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. So they counted out the full number to the king so that the... Yeah, gross, exactly. Imagine this scene in your head where you, like, who's the guy reaching into the bag? You know, like, does that, they lay them out on a table in groups of, like, ten, you know? And then, you know, and then, like, what do you do after, do you just burn the table after that? It's like, I don't want that table anymore. Um, Then Saul, uh, they counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. And then Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, in marriage. And when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and, and that his daughter Michal loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. So we see how much Saul's bitterness and Saul's jealousy begins to damage other people. First of all, it damages 200 poor Philistines, you know? Then it damages his own daughter and her marriage. It ultimately damages David as well. And he gets an enemy rather than a friend and a son-in-law. This is not the way that life ought to work. And this is caused by the Spirit of the Lord leaving David, and uh, sorry, the Spirit of the Lord leaving Saul and him shrinking and becoming more and more bitter and angry and trying to strive to hold on to what he has and seeing anyone else's gain as, as, as taking from him. It's not what he was called to and it's not what we have been called to either so in light of this what have we been called to it's really simple and this is from romans 12 paul is talking to the the church in rome about how we ought to live in light of what god has done for us and it's really simple bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse rejoice with those who rejoice mourn with those who mourn live in harmony with one another do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position and do not be conceited we are to take an active decision as people who have been saved and blessed by god to rejoice with those who rejoice we are to take an active decision as people who have been saved and blessed by god to mourn by with those who mourn 
We have already been saved. We already have status as children of God. And what and who we are has been guaranteed in the actions of Jesus. So we have the opportunity to not see someone else's success as our failure. We have the opportunity to see someone else's mourning not as an indictment of our actions, but because we have such a strong foundation to reach out with those who are experiencing a different emotion than us and say, yes, I'm going to go there with you. So when someone experiences a joyful situation, their, their business is taking off, their, their children are doing amazing, they're, they're, they're having success in their relationship, and they're growing in their faith, we can stand with them and say, yes, good for you. I'm glad that that's happening for you. I'm not concerned that you're not going to need me anymore. I'm not concerned that, that, that I'm not feeling exactly what you're feeling, so that makes what I'm feeling less real. We can do that. And even more importantly in our society today, when someone becomes to us and says, I'm mourning because I'm hurt, because the way that this world is constructed and the way that things have happened in my life is making me, is attacking me and making me feel small and insignificant, we can mourn with that person. We don't have to say, well, well, you're not experiencing a real feeling. Or we don't have to say, well, 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 your oppression isn't real. I don't get it because I've never experienced that. We don't have to say that, that I don't understand what you're going through therefore i can't possibly it can't possibly be real we can just say i hear you and i don't get it but i hear you and please explain to me more of where you're coming from because we have such a firm foundation their mourning does not shake who we are we're secure in jesus so we undertake the discipline of rejoicing and the discipline of celebration. That even though we experience those first few moments when Faisal Butt wins $15,000 that, that I had the chance of winning, even though I experienced that first twinge of like, ooh, that I, I undertake the discipline of saying, you know what, Faisal's a good guy. And Faisal just had a baby last week. And this is really exciting for him. So, so I'm going to be like, you know what, awesome. Good for you, Mr. Butt. Uh, that was, that's his real name, by the way. I'm not, I'm not making that up. You can Google him. He's a very funny guy. Um, very nice guy. And, but, I, but it was a discipline to say, I'm going to be happy for him. I'm going to be happy for him because that's what I've been called to do. I'm going to undertake the discipline of celebration. I'm going to undertake the discipline of mourning. That, 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 that when my, my, my women friends come to me and, and say, like, it's really hard to be a woman in a world that is completely controlled by men sometimes, that I don't have to say, like, I don't think that that's true because I've never experienced that. I can undertake the discipline of saying, I'm going to listen to you before I make judgment. I'm going to listen to you before I say I've never experienced that. I'm going to listen to you and say I, how you are feeling and being treated is horrible before I undertake the decision to evaluate. It's a discipline that we engage in. And the range of experiences and the fluidity of experience that we've been called to, and, and uh, the, sorry, this, we have a range of experiences and a fluidity of experiences, and that's what we've been called to, and, and we're capable of doing that because our foundation is Jesus is, uh, our foundation in Jesus is so secure. And, and most of all, 
despite the actions of the antagonists in our story, the adversaries against us, be they Satan, which is real, be they the societies and structures that we built, be it our own family members or friends that are close to us, be it whatever that we come against that is opposing us, we have the, whatever their actions are, we know how this story ends. And we know that this story ends in the kingdom of God coming and God dwelling amongst his people and, and the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven and love for everyone and hope for everyone and joy for everyone who has given their lives to Jesus. We know how this story ends. So given that that's the, the, the foundational principle that we ought to have, how, what practical ways do we do this? What are the practical ways that, that, that we actually do this? And, and I'm going to try and do this quickly, but I think it's incredibly important. I see no more practical evidence of how we ought to do this than in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a fascinating psalm. The psalmist, it wasn't David, it was Asaph, or we're not really sure what, who it was. But he says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, my foot is also almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He continues, and this is how he struggles, the people that he has trouble seeing. He says that they have no struggles, and their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves in violence. And from their callous hearts come iniquity, and their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff. They speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take the possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? And this is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. It's an amazing psalm where he's just like, I looked at the super rich of the world and I wanted what they had. And, and everything seems to go so easy for them. And, and how is it that, that, that the God that I worship doesn't do something about this. And why am I struggling if these things go on? But the psalmist has a shift in his own mentality in the middle of the psalm where he brings it, where he brings it around. He says, if I had spoken out like that, if I had said those genuine feelings, which are real, if I had, if I had said them out loud as if they were true, I would have betrayed your children. Like, and, and I want to nuance this a little bit. He's not saying if I had have said the feelings that I have, it's okay to say the feelings that you have, but you need to do them in context of having processed them. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. It's okay to be troubled deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. And he says, Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed. He continues, when they are, they are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desired besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. All of this clarity that he gets and seeing that, that the, 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 the successes of the wicked in this world are fleeting, and that, that God is good, and God is powerful, and God is working. All of that comes when he enters the sanctuary of the Lord. All of that comes when he enters into a place where he can push aside the nonsense of the world and all the information that he's constantly being bombarded with and say, oh, wait a minute, in this 
place. I can sit and, and, and be focused again and be reminded about what is true and what is good and what is noble and what is holy. And that is that God is with me, that my foundation is in the Lord, that he is looking after me, that he is caring for me, and I will not be pushed aside from that. And that reality, that, that, that till I entered the sanctuary of God is what we're for. That's why we're here on a Sunday morning. That's why we gather, because we all need to be reminded again in a world where we're constantly seeing that, like, wait a minute, evil people are doing okay, and lonely people don't be, and sick people don't seem to be getting healed as much as they like them to. And why am I still so anxious when I know the certainty of the Lord? This is the place where we come to do that. And this is the opportunity that we have to be reminded of what we know is true and have the nonsense that is built up over an entire week removed from our heads. This is incredibly important. And I went through a time and period where it was fashionable to say, oh, going to church doesn't really matter. It's all about where your heart is at. And I believe that that's true. But the reality is I also know that people who don't make it a priority to be in this place or a place like this or in somebody's house or take some part out of their week to, to, to gather with other people to experience the truth of the Lord, they get lost real fast. Real, real fast. And over the last 20 years, as much as I've been like, it's all about where your heart's at, it is where your heart's at. And your heart drifts if you're not gathering with other people to have it straightened out. That's why we're important. It's incredibly important. Not because I'm going to say something so wise, but because we need to give the attention to, to say something, to hear words that are true. And to gather at a time that we don't choose, with people that we don't choose, in a place that we don't choose, for a purpose that we do choose. Which is to have our hearts and minds reoriented to what God is doing in this world. And to remind ourselves who is good, and who is holy, and what is powerful. Because we're all in danger of shrinking. We're all in danger of having that weed of jealousy and bitterness grow into something that damages us and damages the people around us. But in Christ... And in each other, rather than, uh, sorry, in Christ and with each other, rather than shrinking, we grow. We do. It happens. It happens slowly. It happens in ways that we didn't expect. It happens in, 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 without any kind of measurement or being able to say A plus B equals C. But, uh, but over the last 20 years, I've seen it happen continually. In Christ and with each other, we grow and we grow more open and we grow more loving and we grow more giving and we grow more in grace and more in knowing Jesus. And this is a very good measurement of whether or not the Spirit of the Lord is actually working in someone's life. Because it's no good if we've just been occupying this pew for 30 years and your heart gets smaller and shrinks and angrier and bitter. That's not what God has called us to. We should be getting greater, more open, lighter in what God has called us to. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we, you are good. We thank you that you have given us such a firm foundation in Jesus. And we thank you that because of this firm foundation, we cannot be distracted or we ought not to be distracted by Saul who, who saw someone else's success as his failure, who, who, who saw the love of someone else as, as, as hatred towards him. 
but that you have called us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn and, and you have given us the capability of rejoicing with those who rejoice and, and mourning with those who mourn. So help us to do that today. Help us to be reoriented to who you are and what you're doing in the world and help us to be reminded again of what a firm and secure foundation we have and because of that, go out into this world boldly and graciously and courageously knowing that the, that the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.